0: Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's working group on national security, technology, and law. In this episode, Task Force co-chair and Brookings Institution senior fellow Benjamin Wittes interviews author Fred Kaplan on his new book, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyberwar. It was recorded on June 15, 2016. Uh, so it's great to be back, uh, and uh, as you all know, our guest this evening is, is Fred Kaplan. Uh, so just diving right in, uh, there are a million remarkable items in this book, and to me, the most remarkable is how early somebody identified what, the problem of what we now call cybersecurity. Right. It is somebody I'd never heard of um, before. Um, And I want you to start, if you could, by just telling us the story of how quickly after the internet is hypothesized and prototyped, somebody says, wait a minute,
1: but cybersecurity. Yeah, well, well, first, thanks thanks everybody for coming out. I really appreciate the the good-sized crowd. And thanks for inviting me. Um, Yeah, this goes back to 1967. 67, when the ARPANET was about to roll out. You know, this was the the predecessor to the internet. And there was a man named Willis Ware, W-A-R-E. He was the head of the computer science department at the Rand Corporation. And he he was a genuine computer pioneer. He'd worked with von Neumann at Princeton on the first computers. He was also on the Scientific Advisory Board of the NSA and he looked at what was about to roll out and he wrote a paper. It was secret at the time. It's been declassified since. It's it's a fascinating document in which he basically said, look, when you put information on a network, when you have online access, it might have been the first use of the phrase online, we have online access from multiple unsecured locations you're creating inherent vulnerabilities. You're not going to be able to keep secrets anymore. Now, uh, when I was doing my research, I I was interviewing the guy who was the deputy director of ARPA at the time, who was running this program. And I said, were you familiar with Willis Ware's paper? And he goes, oh, yeah, sure, I knew Willis. I said, well, what'd you think? And he said, well, I took it to the members of the team. And I talked to a couple of them to confirm the story. And uh, they said, oh, geez, don't, listen, please, don't, don't saddle us with a security requirement. I mean, look how hard it was to do what we've done. It would be like telling the Wright brothers that their first plane had to carry 20 passengers for 50 miles. Let's, let's take this one step at a time. It's going to be decades before the Russians can do anything like this, and, and you know, it was. It was two and a half, three decades, by which time, however, Whole systems and networks had grown up with no provision for security whatsoever. So I see this as sort of the, the, the bitten apple in the digital garden of Eden. I mean, it was inherent. And, and in fact, years later, it was in fact when when the two guys who wrote War Games were writing their script and wondering how, how plausible their scenario was that some kid could just dial in to... The, the main computer at NORAD. Uh, <clears throat> they went to see Willis Ware. They, they lived in Santa Monica. They called Rand and said, who should we talk to? Oh, you want to see Willis Ware? And Willis Ware says, well, yeah, you know, it's funny, you sh- I designed the software for that computer. And, and you're right, it is a closed system, but there's always some officer who wants to do some work from home on the weekends, so they leave a port open. And yeah, I guess if somebody dialed into that, they would get it. And then he leaned forward and so this was in 1983 that he's telling, maybe in 82, he says, you know, what people don't realize is the only computer that's completely secure is a computer that no one can use. <laughs> and so, you know, it took a while for the rest of us to realize this, but, but yeah, th- this was known by a few people from the very, even before what most of us consider to be the beginning. It's the er beginning. It was, you know, from the get-go. So, let's talk, you, you, you preempted me. I, I want to talk about war games. Oh, uh, yeah, okay.
0: Um, so, <clears> one <throat> of the interesting things in a lot of these conversations is how far ahead science fiction is from reality, and that <coughs> reality endeavors... Or how accurate science yes, fiction Yes, exactly, how, fiction. how accurately it anticipates... it always has been, ...certain right? aspects right. of reality. And there are two movies Mm. of my childhood that you talk about, both written by the same screenwriters, um, that have profound effects on U.S. policy in cybersecurity, in proto-cybersecurity awareness, one of which actually leads to a presidential directive. Right. let me ask this question, reverse engineer this question. How much of U.S. cybersecurity awareness is a function of two Hollywood screenwriters?
1: Yeah, well, in fact, a lot more than they knew until I told them, actually. The, the, um, yeah, I, I, the, both of these stories knocked me out as well when I, when I realized them. But, In the first weekend of June of 1983, Ronald Reagan was up at Camp David on one of his five-day weekends and watching a movie every night. And he watched War Games one night because one of the screenwriters was the son of a movie star and a Hollywood producer that he knew from the old days. And so they got this movie into his hands the first weekend that it was out. Very different from most of the movies that he saw. You, you can see there, there, in the Reagan Library, there's a whole list of all the movies that he saw when he was president. But the following Wednesday, he's back in the White House, and there's a big national security meeting. It wasn't about this. It was about the MX missile, for those of you who are old enough to remember the MX missile. And But at one point, he puts down his index cards, and he says, has anyone seen this movie War Games? OK, nobody had seen it. It just came out. So he, he starts going into this. Very detailed plot description, and people are kind of looking around, like, Where, where's this going, and what's what's he up to now? And then he turns to General John Vesey, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he says, "General, could <coughs> could something like this really happen? You know, could somebody just break into our most secure computers?" And he says, "Well, will look into that, Mr. President." And he comes back a week later and says, "Mr. President, the problem is much worse than you think," <laughs> which leads a year later to the first National Security Decision Directive on computer security. It's called NSDD 145. You can look it up. It's been declassified. And you will see if you look it up that it reads exactly the same as memoranda of this sort that have been written today and in the intervening 30 years. You know, we are facing a serious threat from the vulnerability of our information systems, uh, from foreign agents, criminals, or terrorists, and we must do, you know. Now, <coughs> the other movie, <coughs> excuse me, was uh, Sneakers. Have you seen Sneakers? Sneakers is a little bit less well-known, mm-hmm. but uh, now that came out in 92, 92, yeah, 93 maybe. Anyway, uh, Admiral Mike McConnell had just become director of the NSA, and while he had a background in intelligence, the Cold War is over, it just ended. And he's taking over this enormous agency, whose A-team, as it was called, was going after the Soviets, who no longer exist. So he's wondering what 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 is this what is this agency what is this about? What am I doing here? What? people tried to tell him, but <coughs> didn't get it. So then he went to see sneakers. And if you might recall, there is a speech at the end by the Ben Kingsley character, you know, this evil genius, where he says, you know, Marty. You know, we're living in a world war, Marty. There's a world war going on. But it's not about bullets and bombs. It's about information. Who has the most information? Okay, McConnell sits up in his chair and says, that's my mission statement. And he tells all of his senior team, in fact, he tells everybody to go see this movie. He gets the last reel and shows it to a senior executive. He brings back one of the best people on the field to become his new director of information warfare. Suddenly, every service has an outfit called the Center for Blah 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 Information Warfare. Now, a lot of this was things that they'd already been doing, including the NSA, but it became kind of formalized. The main mission of the NSA from that point on, although it had been anyway, but now it was really kind of explicit, Was using our SIGINT capability to get inside the other guys' networks and to mess with their heads, to mess with their command control systems. And then at that point, and everybody's kind of, he's sort of thrilled by all the stuff that these SIGINT guys can do. And then uh, he kind of realizes what everybody else, dating back to Willis Ware, realized, which is oh, wait a minute. You know, this isn't exactly the Manhattan Project, you know. If we can do this to other guys, other guys are going to be able to do it to us. And that's when McConnell, among many other people, became very hypersensitive even to questions of cybersecurity. So here's, here's a, where, where I, what I was left
0: wondering about with this aspect mm-hmm. of the book. <clears throat> Is this an example of Hollywood anticipating the direction that things are going or is this an example of Hollywood causing the direction of things, right? So, they gave McConnell the idea, yeah. right? They, in, in Reagan's case, you can say this is actually a president being imaginative and watching a movie and doing what elected leadership is supposed to do which is not staying down in the weeds with a, yeah. you know with the technical folks but saying gosh you know could this really happen
1: and yeah. then the weeds having and, and, to and, say yeah and by the but, way you know the first half of that story is in Lou Cannon's book where he says You know, he goes to the movie and then talks about it at an NSC meeting. Ha, ha, ha. You know, another example example of of this crazy guy confusing movies with, not the latter part, which is that asking the question of the Joint Chiefs chairman and coming back and saying, yeah, it's a real problem. So, uh, well, it's interesting. You know, I told this story to the two screenwriters Uh, and... They were the ones who told me about the Willis Ware link, which I did not know about G- getting back. They, they'd gone to Ware. Who, but uh, they knew that Reagan saw the movie. They didn't know that anybody... They, they didn't know the policy came out of it, and they knew nothing about what had gone on with, with Sneakers. And, and, I, and I read, I read a, uh, an interview with one of the screenwriters later, I think uh, an AP or something, and he said that for years he, he'd been you know, kind of wondering in a nightmarish fugue whether war games had caused this new generation of hackers. Because every hacker you know has seen this movie. They, they kind of model himself, whether on good, good guy grounds or bad guy grounds after the Matthew Broderick character, uh, whether he had caused in some way for this development. And he was very happy to learn from this book that uh, that it also set in motion policies to to, to do something about it.
0: But I mean, in in some ways the more striking example of causation is the sneakers example where you describe McConnell sitting there thinking, what's the mission gonna be? Mm-hmm. And then there's a movie about
1: offensive cyber operations and he says, I've yeah, got it. it. You know, like, it. Like, and And it's kind of weird that he's taking this from this mad, right, the mad genius. genius, that's now the policy and, for and, the NSA. And he says, this is me, yeah, I've got a it. whole agency at my yeah, disposal, yeah, yeah. let's do it. Well again, it had been going on for a while, but yeah, it hadn't been systematized. It's,
0: and, like it, and, this, yeah. and it hadn't yeah. been concretized right in your account, in the agency leadership's mind, right? That's right. right. And here you have, you know, Hollywood screenwriters who plant a vision in the minds of the head of an agency about what they can use that agency for. And I was left wondering, you know, in the way that some people have wondered about, you know, know, and that you allude to at another spot in the book, about William Gibson and, and right, sort of cyberspace. Right. Cyber. Where uh, How much of this is anticipatory and how much of it is causal?
1: Boy, I mean, that's your cla- You're asking the chicken-egg question basically, right? Uh, I mean, in both cases, there was something there to begin with. I mean, this was going on. I mean, the reason why the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff could come back a week later and say the problem is much worse than you think is that the Pentagon's liaison with the NSA, who was an assistant secretary of defense for what then was called Command Control Communications and Intelligence, knew about all this stuff already, but it was at a very subterranean level. I mean, they knew that we were breaking into, you know, at the time, uh, you know, uh, Russian Chinese and North Vietnamese communications and they were to the extent that they could breaking into our stuff. This was going on. And so it didn't take Ronald Reagan's question for some people to, to, oh my God, it's true. No, they, they they were already, this was going on, but again at a very way, way, way underground and way, way above top secret level. And this brought it in to the policy world for the first time.
0: So there have been previous books about the sort of about cyber war, mm-hmm. where it comes from. Um, you know, Richard Clark had a book. Yep. Uh, Shane Harris has mm-hmm. a, uh, you know, an excellent book. Um, this is what, to me, makes this book highly distinctive. Is its, uh, and I don't see, I say this positively, not negatively, okay. is that it's almost a bureaucratic history. That is, it's a it's a history of the way the U.S. federal government at a bunch of different levels uh, responded to both the opportunities on an offensive respond level and
1: didn't respond and didn't
0: respond yeah. and and engaged or didn't engage mm-hmm. on a defensive level, um, and I'm I'm interested in why you chose, it's not an operational history. Yeah. Yeah, first there was this operation and then there was, and look at all the cool things that hackers have been able to do uh, defensively and offensively. It's really people in government faced this problem yeah. and they did X or they ignored it. And and so I'm I'm interested in why you chose to focus on this sort of Bureaucratic development of agency response.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, fair question. Uh, I would also expand not just bureaucratic, but also the history of the idea. Sure. Uh, I mean, it, you know, I've written this was my fifth book. Uh, a couple of my other books, which are relevant to this particular question, my first book, which was written in '83, called *The Wizards of Armageddon*, was about the group of think tank intellectuals who invented nuclear strategy and how that became adapted into policy. A book that I wrote in 2013, The Insurgents, David Petraeus and the Plot to Change the American Way of War, was about this group of intellectual army officers and how they revived counterinsurgency doctrine against much resistance in an attempt to win the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So I guess in that sense this is sort of, the Dark Territory is sort of the story of these spies and computer technologists and at first clueless federal officials trying to grapple with this new technology in their midst and how to use it as weapons of war or how they're realizing others are using it for weapons of war. So I guess it's just the way, this is what I'm interested in. As a practical measure, I mean, two things I learned very early on in the course of research which gave me a little apprehension, which was first that we have been doing (coughs) cyber offensive operations for a long time. Second, all of that stuff is inherently highly classified. a lot of people, I, I interviewed more than 100 people for this book, including uh, six of the eight living NSA directors. Uh, there's some stuff in this book that is still technically classified. A lot of it was told to me by pretty high officials, not <clears throat> you know uh, whistleblowers or self-styled whistleblowers. Uh, I did learn or put to piece together a couple of things that were very cool stories. But I didn't put them in the book because I'm really not in the business of blowing ongoing operations. This is the long way of answering the practical part of your question, which is that, quite honestly, I could not get into the details. Like, the you know, he did this, then, and then this happened, then this happened, then this guy did that, then that guy did this. That same level of detail that I write about the bureaucratics, I, I just couldn't get into it. Uh, on the operational side there 's a lot of stuff in this book about operations, but it 's not you know minute by minute n- names places uh, so part of it was just, okay this i I may not even get to the bottom of this, and if I do it 's going to take a very, very long time, and you know then it 's going to maybe cause trouble <laughs> so so part of it, I guess, is my own. Uh, just just what i 'm interested in, the kinds of books that i 'm interested in writing, and part of it was um, you know it sounds like a bit of a cop out, but <clears throat> just that uh, there there were some practical in, impediments to doing a, a full blown operational history of this sort of thing so one of the <coughs> one of the intellectual
0: processes that you describe people going through in this uh, at v- various stages of the history is they see an opportunity Mm -hmm. on the offensive side. Their introduction to the subject (coughs) is is a set of opportunities of what we can do to somebody else. Uh, And being kind of blown away by the magnitude of the effect that you can have. And then at some point, turning around and realizing that we are ourselves much more vulnerable than the target that we've been so impressed with ourselves for hitting. Um, And a a sort of come to Jesus moment of Mm -hmm. wait a minute, if we're only focused on the offensive side, uh, we're setting ourselves up for a major disaster. and I could not think of, other than Willis Ware, one character in this book who doesn't have to go through that process, right. who intuits that process from the beginning. And and um, the people who were skeptical about offensive and uh, operations are generally aff- uh, 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 <coughs> skeptical about it for economic reasons.
1: Or just because, you know, because they like tanks they're, they're, they're tank generals or fighter pilots and computers or and you know, so, sideshow.
0: So my question is, Are is this, in your view, an inherent feature of the technology? That we have this intellectual engagement of, of it where you get really excited about the offensive side and then you realize that you're standing naked? Uh, or yeah. is there... And, and are there other analogies you can think of in the history of weaponry that this this maps onto or is this a sort of unique feature of this this space?
1: Well, I I think it is inherent at least as it's developed. It didn't have to be, but as it's developed. I mean, for example, within the NSA there have always been two broad divisions. There's the signals intelligence branch and then there's what's now called Information Assurance. It used to be called Information Security. SIGINT was in the main headquarters. IAD was off in a in a dingy-looking gray brick building 20 minutes away. Uh, it wasn't even in headquarters. It wasn't part of the operation. It was the, the the sexy stuff. If you were in the NSA, what was the most exciting stuff? You were breaking code. You were hacking into, you were listening in on conversations, you were putting together this and that. Uh, the idea of defending yourself, especially for, for many of these years, we were, really weren't all that vulnerable. I mean, the, the Russians and the Chinese, they were doing interesting things, but not nearly to the extent of what we had. And so that was, it was two separate cultures, and it was very clear to everybody involved which was the dominant culture in terms of budgets, in terms of access, in terms of, you know, the badges you wore, I mean, just everything from top to bottom. <clears throat> you know, it started to change a bit, but but it's still, I mean, the, 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 the center of the NSA even now, I mean, it's this outfit called TAO, the Tailored Access Operations Unit, which is essentially the elite hackers within the NSA, and it's tailored access because it's basically somebody, the president or the, somebody come, I need to get into this guy's email, or we need to find out what, you know Al-Qaeda or whatever is doing." And they figure out how to get there. And you, you've read the, the report since, a lot of which came out of the Snowden documents of you know, intercepting computers as they were shipped someplace and planting a little device in them, and coming up with technologies that can intercept, even if something is unplugged from the Internet. You know, you're feeding off the radio emissions or the VGA emissions, or you pay somebody to go in and put a little a little uh, thumb drive infected with malware. I mean, this this is cool stuff, right? Uh, defending against similar things, while in many ways much more important, uh, is 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 less exciting. But one, I, of, I think it's, but but one of the things
0: that you describe, <clears throat> which is certainly consistent with my own. Dabblings in this area, is that a lot of people are no longer making the distinction between those two things. At no, that's all. No, that
1: this, you, that, okay. That, and that is that has grown up to be an inherent thing, and, and it it came about in a way that is very logical, very reasonable, but very dangerous, as most of the things that I write about tend, tend to be. Uh, When they started systematizing these things, as the military is wont to do, they came up with with three concepts. There was, they've changed the names of these things now, but it was, you know, CND, computer network defense, CNA, computer network attack, but then there was something in the middle, CNE, computer network exploitation. Now what does that mean? That that is literally it means you exploit vulnerabilities in somebody else's. Computer network, you, you, know, you get in, and once you're into a network, it's 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 you can't. It's not just that you're looking inside. You can mess with it. You can change things. You can delete things. You can alter things. You can do, so CNE, on the one hand, maybe it's it's it, it maybe it's just a form of what used to be called active defense. In other words, okay, I need to know what these guys are up to. The best way to do this is getting inside and seeing what they're doing. If they're preparing an attack. I'll find it. So it's, it's like having a, a spy you know, in somebody's military command. You know, this is a, a digital spy in their networks. However, CNE can also be the first step preparing the battlefield, as they used to call it, for an attack. There's no difference between CNE and CNA except for one extra push of the button. You're in there. It's, like, it's In this sense, it's, it's as if the spy on the ground is also a saboteur. He's got a little nuclear weapon in his backpack or something. Or
0: he's going to get in the system, he's going to get in there and then await orders exactly. as to whether yeah. he's just there to report back on what's going order. on.
1: So, in that sense, there are very good reasons for getting into other countries' networks. Classic CNE, espionage, very legitimate. However, with just one push of a button or one extra step, one additional order, this can become an attack. And so therefore, and here's where things become dangerous, we're into everybody else's stuff. They're into all of our stuff. And not just military, but you know, 25 years ago, everything else and what's involved in what we now call critical infrastructure, you know, banking and finance, transportation, energy, power, all this stuff. They said, oh wow, let's hook up to the internet because it's efficient, you can move things around more, it saves labor, it's cheap. Nobody had any idea what they were doing in terms of the vulnerability. So we get into their stuff, they get into our stuff, and maybe it's just for espionage. Maybe it's legitimately just for espionage. But once you're in there, there is the inherent potential to blow it up. And so remember in in, uh, in the old realm of nuclear strategy, there was something called crisis instability, where, you know, the, the, the MIRVed ICBMs that were at once the most lethal are also the most vulnerable. And so there is inherently this, this it's the same thing. We are in each other's network. We, each side has the ability to go one more instruction and it becomes a weapon of attack. If there is a crisis brewing, a confrontation, say in the South China Sea, or, or pick your favorite scenario, each side has an incentive to go first because if you can knock out the other guy's computer networks, you are going to have an advantage if the war begins. So there is an incentive to go first in the cyber realm before the other side goes first and this could lead to escalation. Now let me just add one more point if you don't mind. This kind of stuff, nobody has, people are only just now beginning to think of. You know, after the atomic bomb went off in 1945, within months, even in some cases within weeks, there were people with a strategic outlook, you know, guys, people like at the Rand Corporation or places like that, who were starting to think, well, what, what is the impact of this new weapon in our midst? Does it change the nature of warfare? Can it be used like any other weapon? If it can't then we've, our main goal must be to deter wars not win them and how do you do that and you know there were some secret things about nuclear weapons but the basic stuff was known there were pictures of what it could do uh, there were reports saying it was you know built from uranium or plutonium you knew there are access out there's documents out there who has uranium with cyber until very recently none of this was out there it was all highly secret ensconced in the most secretive agencies of, of US government. People of a strategic bent did not have access to even the most basic stuff that they could have an intelligent strategic dialogue. There is right now, in the Pentagon, there is a panel of the Defense Science Board trying to finish up a report on cyber deterrence. The concept has not been defined until now from the beginning like what are you trying to d- deter that's the question number 1 you know is an attack on a bank is that is that an issue of national security how about five banks how about a movie studio how about what is it that we're trying to deter and how do you do that if we're more vulnerable to cyber attacks than everybody else what does retaliation in kind mean and then you know we have a whole we have a cyber command which has war plans which has targets which is integrated with every other combatant command and the basic questions are only now beginning to be asked. I was interviewing, uh, it was like the third time I interviewed this guy, very high up in the intelligence. And uh, I sit down and he goes, well, listen, what, what have you, uh, what do you know, what have you been thinking about uh, cyber deterrence? And I said, well, I mean, yeah, nobody really seems to know what it is. I don't know either. He goes, oh, I was hoping uh, you might know something, because uh, I'm on this Defense Science Board panel now. Maybe I thought you might want to become a member of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh boy, these guys are really in bad shape. They're asking me to be, you know, I wouldn't have done it, because it's, you know, you need a clearance and everything. But the, it is, it's something that has not been thought through yet. We're, we're, we're way along in developing the weapons without, with, while only just beginning to, to address The the basic
0: concepts. Okay, so let's talk about the basic concepts. You don't actually go through in the book and talk about what you think they should be. But I think Uh, a reasonable reader of your book would take away a number of possible options. Okay. So one of them is uh, be as tough on the defensive side as you can, harden everything you can harden, and uh, accept that you're going to get hit every now and then uh, and respond as, you know, as defensively as you can and use these snazzy uh, offensive tools as profligately as the national interest may uh, acquire because they're there, they're neat, they're available. And well, people I people not really... would
1: advocate using them profligately.
0: No, 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 I'm, I'm just
1: saying this is a conclusion oh, you okay. could draw, right?
0: Uh-huh. Um, another is be really careful Mm-hmm. about normalizing the use mm-hmm. of these tools because we have more vulnerability than than others. Right. Um, and really try to normalize the inappropriateness of the use of these tools, even at the risk of foregoing lots of cool offensive operations, mm-hmm. and normalize very, very strong defense. Uh, the third is be hypocritical, right? You know, normalize strong defense delegitimize the tools and use them aggressively and keep it as secret as you can.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, when you think about like what's what's the what's the deterrence doctrine or the 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 doctrine that flows from the reporting and the history that you've done,
1: what makes sense to you? Hmm. Well let me yeah I'll deal with some of those separately and then try to synthesize them maybe for the first time uh... (coughs) spontaneously Um, one thing that i do say in the book uh, is and and, and there are reports about this what what the pentagon has come up with and and what some industries have come up with too i mean they realize you know there used to be this fantasy within the nsa that one day we will come up with the algorithm that creates the perfect black box that nobody will be able to, to infiltrate once things like thumb drives started being invented, they realized it's not going to happen. And so while, sure, yes, you know, improve, build a better lock. You know, build better locks, devise more you know, longer passwords, do all the things that are kind of obvious to be done, but basically realize that if somebody really wants to get in and they have a lot of resources to do so, they're gonna get in. And so, um, the military, What I mean, for example, let me give you an example. Um, the Navy, this isn't in the book, because I found out about it afterwards, so this is like the bonus reel, right? Mm-hmm. special features. The Navy is now training people on ships to use sextants to navigate by the stars, you know, something that nobody's done in ages. Because they assume that in the event of a war, somebody is going to hack the data link with the GPS satellites. And if that happens, they're fucked. They don't know even where they are, much less what, what how to fight. And so they're going back to that kind of thing. The Air Force is taking special units, and to the extent they possibly can, taking them completely offline so that if everything gets hammered, At least there's somebody out there who can perform the basic mission. They're they're doing things like that. The, the, the The new buzzwords now in cyber generally, in some industries as well as the Defense Department, are, well, deterrence, although nobody knows what that is yet, but detection and resilience. In other words, have the ability, if somebody gets in, because now it's been estimated that the average time that, some, that a hacker is inside your system before you even realize it. And these are like companies. You know, it's like seven months. Seven months. So the thing is, the goal is detect the intrusion right away and then kick him out and repair the damage as quickly. That's what, you know, again, they're, they're still trying to build better locks and so forth. But the real, the real thing that they're focusing on conceptually, operationally, and technologically is detection and, and, uh, and resilience. And you know, I, I've talked with some industry groups and that, that's what I recommend to them. In terms of, of, of whether we should be doing this offensive stuff ourselves, well we're doing a lot of it. And most of it we don't know anything about. But you know, one, one revelation in, in Snowden's papers was there is something called PDD 20 that Obama signed which is about cyber offensive operations. And some of the language in it suggests that this is, it lays out in much greater detail than in any previous document the procedures for doing this. And by the way, the president has to approve all cyber offensive operations. That's been true for a while. But the language of this suggests that this is something that will now become kind of standard practice. This is for whether for espionage or whatever, but we're doing this. One thing uh, I must say, because there's so much out there on Stuxnet, there's not a lot of new things about Stuxnet in my Stuxnet chapter. I do synthesize a lot of it, but one thing that I did have that was new is that both in the Bush and Obama administrations, at all levels, there was serious debate about whether we should do this. There was an oh, an awareness, that if we do this, we're crossing a Rubicon, this will be the first time that we have used a computer to destroy a physical object, a strategic asset, critical infrastructure of another country, and we might get blowback from this. So and, and there was a calculation that said, okay, we're going into this with eyes open, but it's better that we do this if it means that we can retard Iran's nuclear program by a few years. And do you think in retrospect that that judgment was right? Uh, Given that now Iran has uh, not only signed but is abiding by this nuclear deal, uh, it probably was. I mean, one thing that got messed up was that you know the Israelis tried to expand the program and it got out. You know, viruses get out, and and the the virus had been designed in a way that if it goes to other Siemens, you know, it was it was it was hacking into this Siemens built controller, and th- which was all over the world. It was specifically designed to do damage only to the ones at the Natanz factory. If it hit other ones, it would leave a trace, but it wouldn't do damage. And what began to happen was that security companies like Symantec and Kaspersky got, started getting reports, hey, there's a really funny worm in our system. And they looked at it and said, God, what is this? We've never seen anything like this. And of course, it's their obligation. That's what they do: to investigate it, what's going on here, to notify their their customers that hey, watch out, there's this thing. And then after a while, they realized, oh Jesus! They realized what they'd stumbled into. And then once the Iranians knew about it, uh, you know, they 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 unplugged it. But you know, I I I've been told there's a there's a new movie which is actually quite interesting that. Uh, that uh, Gibney, Alex Gibney made, it's about to come out, called Zero Days. And quotes a TAO person uh, as saying that Obama had approved uh, a cyber offensive program that in case the, er, the nuclear talks went nowhere and in case Israel launched an attack, that we had this virus ready to go that would turn off Iranian air defenses, that would turn off their, it would turn off, it was much more massive than Stuxnet was. I mean, it was gonna turn off everything. And so, you know, and why not? Why not prepare for that kind of thing? We're about to go to war, let's say with China or whatever. Why not have a war plan ready to go, because I'm sure they do, where we turn off all of their stuff as much as we possibly can. We know they do exercises of this kind of thing, and they've basically emulated the information warfare policies that, that we've been uh, putting in for 20 years. So yeah, again, like 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 any other thing, going back to you know doctrines about limited nuclear war and, and other things. Yeah, why you know? Um, yeah, you, you prepare for this kind of attack. The difference in this case is that. Uh, the way that you prepared to do this is that you get inside the network. You really are poised to do it like right now. And they're poised to do it against us right now. And this creates uh, you know, incentives for preemption. That, that's, that's, that's the dilemma. And, and again, there, there's, if you're going to do it, that's the inevitable. That's the inherent uh, implication of it, I think. So there are a lot of interesting characters in
0: this, in this book. Uh, there are two that loom over the entire Mm -hmm. middle section (laughs) and sort of last half of it. Uh, One is General Hayden, and the Mm -hmm. other is General Alexander. Oh, I thought you were also
1: gonna say Dick Clark, but yeah, okay. Uh,
0: So, uh, like, Dick Clark is a fascinating character, and his role is, um, uh, you know, his role in the development of the architecture was a little bit better known to me, partly because he's spent so much time
1: talking about it himself. <laughs> um, but um, the... Um, the interesting thing is that most of what he talks about himself turn, turns out to be true, actually. Well, so,
0: so there, there's, there's no doubt that but he's... But yeah, the Hayden
1: Alexander is, but, a, is a central... Uh, but these are rivalry. two
0: successive yeah. directors of yeah. NSA who take NSA from a period of a kind of Dormancy and budgetary mm-hmm. uh, uh, morass and stagnancy to a period of incredible dominance mm-hmm. over uh, uh, an amazing sort of sort of powerhouse of policy and mm-hmm. and both offense and defense.
1: So they they also brought it into the digital era. Uh, up until then, you know, the NSA was still focusing on radio signals and telephone lines.
0: And so what yeah. we know General Hayden's tenure for, and he is, we've, he's sat here talking about his book, right. um, but what, mostly what people know General Hayden's uh, tenure for is the TSP, and mostly what people know General Alexander's tenure for is the Snowden revelations. <laughs> And mm-hmm. so both of, these, both of these guys are chiefly known in the public mind for surveillance scandals of one sort or another that yeah. erupt in their tenure. And you describe them as just dramatically consequential figures. And I, yeah. so, so I'm, I'm interested in how we should
1: understand
0: the role of these two people.
1: Well, as I say, Hayden was the first. Actually, there was another guy who is barely even mentioned in any book about the NSA, who preceded Hayden, named uh, Ken Minahan, who had been the commander of something called the Air Force Information Warfare Center, who really brought the fact of of, uh, vulnerability to the attention of the top brass, in part by staging, when he was director of the NSA a simulation in which 25 members of the NSA hacker squad uh, using commercially available equipment hacked into the entire Defense Department network in a couple of days. And and that sort of was the big wake-up call. And and, uh, Minahan gets no credit for this. But Minahan wasn't a very good manager by his own admission. Uh, Hayden was kind of a supreme manager who took... Minahan's ideas and 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 industrialized them basically, and started funding programs, basically bringing SIGINT into the digital age. As I said, Uh, uh, you know, the way that that the internet works, of course, being completely—it's not just you know phone lines and radio signals writ large. It's a whole other thing. Now Hayden and he created TAO, and Hayden got a little. Hornswoggled by the corporate guys, they came in and did a big study of what was wrong with the NSA, and their big solution was you need to rely on us more. And so he started this big program, his big, uh, uh, big, uh, you know, go out in the world, uh, new revolution to SIGINT in terms of being able to hack into networks. What was the program? Uh, Jesus, the name just slips my mind at the moment, but. Uh, you actually are the first person even to ask this question, I have to say. But uh, anyway, it was a disaster. It cost a couple billion dollars, and it was a disaster because he got swagged by these corporate guys, and he didn't really understand the way the internet worked. And I don't think that he would dispute that. Alexander was actually the first NSA director who was a computer nerd. I mean, Alexander is best understood is having really no fundamental interest in policy. I mean, he basically designed. He, he came uh, even from his time at West Point. He was interested in messing around with computers, and his thing was more and more faster, faster. And he was the first NSA director who actually understood the way this worked. His 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 underlings told me they had to. He would be down on the floor with the tech people discussing problems. They had to put more computers in his office so that he could keep in his office and doing the kinds of things that directors need to do but he completely reoriented uh, yeah Hayden's was called trailblazer and and basically Alexander destroyed it and created something called turbulence which understood the nature of digital networks of, of digital packets and how you uh, how you interfere in, in kind of particular digital packets, how you actually track, and and also realize the idea you can't just collect a bunch of stuff and bring it back home. The the data would just be overwhelming. You have to actually do the monitoring and the messing with out there within the networks themselves. And yeah, he he created, uh, you know, again, like the policies or not, he created uh, the modern NSA. He also created something else that I think people still don't understand
0: as a big feature of the modern NSA, which is the idea, which you describe in uh, in one particular section, but uh, I, I think is really misunderstood, which is the degree to which a significant number of NSA people are forward deployed yeah. and, you know, functioning in a very very direct combat support. Well. Uh, mission. This was true in
1: Iraq and and this was something that I... uh, now you know you you mentioned uh, uh, what's his name's book? He got into it a little bit of it too. Shane. Shane, yeah. But uh, in Iraq, in the Iraq War, uh, basically Alexander and a couple of other generals uh, working together, McChrystal, Realized, okay, Al-Qaeda is a network. We have to create our own network. And they started doing things like capturing insurgent computers, hacking into them, getting into, you know, code names, usernames, passwords. But they realized, you know, it, to get the information, it, it had to go from Iraq. To DOD, to Fort Meade, back to DOD, back. So they actually put people on the ground, NSA people on the ground in Iraq over a period of a few years, rotating in and out. A total of six thousand people, twenty-two of whom were killed in operations involving going out and retrieving computers, killed by mainly roadside bombs. Uh, and what they would do, uh, they would, you know, find these computers, get all the usernames, work with linguists. And one thing they did was to send out phony messages. Uh, things like, you know, two other insurgents saying, you know, let's meet at such and such a place tomorrow at 4 o'clock. And when they met there, either a drone would fall on them or there'd be special forces. And they t- in the course of 2007, which was kind of the pivotal year when everything went our way, at least for a little while in the Iraq War, and this has been attributed to the surge, it's been attributed to Petraeus's counterinsurgency doctrine. And those are true to some degree. But it was also due to this operation, which killed 4,000 insurgents. And not only killed 4,000 insurgents, but messed with their heads, the survivors' heads, because they are thinking, is this a real message that I'm getting on the computer? Is somebody messing with me? It it discombobulated the whole command structure. when when I was asking people about this and some people told me quite a bit and some people were shocked that I knew about it at all and didn't tell me anything and one person said well yeah, this is kind of like um, to the Iraq war what breaking the German submarine codes were to World War II. Now you can overstate the importance of that but it was a factor that you know that, that was quite crucial and and also you know they had people on the ground so for example when somebody, when an insurgent would lay a roadside bomb and a drone was following him, there was somebody in Iraq following him, monitoring it, and whereas before it would take 16 hours to do anything about it, by which time the guy had disappeared, with somebody there on the ground, they could do something about it in one minute. In one minute. And this was also part of the, the 4,000 insurgents. So, uh, and, and yeah, this, it's now become, um, look, from here on out, any kind of mid- middle-sized military operation is going to have cyber as a, as a component. When the Russians invaded Georgia, not only did they move in tanks and airplanes and other things, but they also put a, did a total cyber attack on Georgian information network. Commanders couldn't talk with their soldiers. Diplomats couldn't communicate with the outside world. It was the Russians who put out the first communication of what this was about Uh, in the the Israeli attack on the nascent Syrian nuclear reactor. Uh, This has now come out as well. Uh, You know, the Syrians had just bought a new Soviet integrated air defense system. They were monitoring the screens that night. The reason why four F-15s were able to come in and blow up the reactor was because there was a, there was another Israeli U.S. operation which basically hacked into the link between the radar and the radar screen, so that uh, the guy looking at the screen sees nothing. Now this kind of a hairy thing for an aircraft an aircraft pilot because the radar is spotting the plane, so the pilot's in the plane and he's hearing beep 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 beep. beep, beep. And he's being assured, don't worry. Don't worry, they don't see it. And they also had the radar operator's room bugged so that if anybody was saying, oh, look, hey, there's... If it didn't work, if the hack didn't work for some reason, and they're calling up somebody, oh, we see an airplane coming in, they would... But no, they heard nothing. And so, you know, this is now going to become... I mean, to talk about cyber war, it's a little misleading in the same way that, you know, the, when, when air power first happened, there were Air Force guys who said, oh, air power is going to do everything. We won't need ground forces anymore. I don't think there's going to be such a thing as a cyber, you know, it's just cyber. But cyber will become, it has already become, part of an integrated offense-defense program of, uh, of, of, of any military operation, I think.
0: Now... So one of the questions, you know, and one of the elegant things about the book is that you portray, with approximately equal vividness, uh, the benefits of that from a U.S. perspective in situations like Iraq. You have a wonderful chapter about uh, the Serbia operation, uh-huh. oh, yeah. and yeah. Speci- that's all new. That's, that's and specifically, uh, the idea that this. Operation that we think of as the first time air power actually alone did make a difference mm-hmm. was actually air power as very significantly sub, uh, you know, uh, enhanced yeah. by uh, by cyber operations. Right. Um, but you also describe, in with equal vividness, the threat to U.S. critical infrastructure, the degree to which um, our our own uh, government systems are not, to this day, uh, secure in a fashion that would make us invulnerable to this sort of thing. Yeah. And so my question is, at the end of the day, is
1: cyber warfare net plus or net minus to US security? Yeah, I, you know, it's a good question. Uh, it's like this, you know, as I said earlier, 25 years ago, every critical industry critical infrastructure industry, decided to hook up everything to the internet. Uh, We have, in terms of offensive power, uh, let's make a metaphor. We have the best rocks. We have the most powerful rocks, the most lethal rocks, uh, the most, you know, they can take all kinds of weird courses. But we're also living in the glassiest houses. So that means that another power with much less capable rocks than we have can do at least as much damage to us as we can do to them. Uh, So, you know, this became a big government issue over the idea of the vulnerability of critical infrastructure, and yet very little has been done to that. You know, I I mentioned Dick Clark. When he was in the White House dealing with these issues, he tried to put in a, a, an order that would require that, that would set forth security requirements for critical infrastructure. It was always resisted by the companies, by lobbyists, and even by you know the Treasury Department, White House economic advisor, because this would you know this would retard research and development and, and reduce our international competitiveness. Uh, you know, banks, banks have actually done pretty well with this. Now, why is that? Well, because what are they, what are they in the business of? They want your money and they need your trust. If your bank was getting hacked every week, you're not going to keep your money there. And they have a lot of money, so they can hire really good people. Now they get hacked all the time, but you know, this detection and resilience stuff, they're very good at that. They, They fix the problem pretty well. Plus, there's you know, this thing called the FDIC, which, which protects the, the money. Electrical power grids, which we've known are vulnerable for a long time, they're not so interested in this. Because, look, you figure, well, look, what do you want me to do? You want me to spend $10 million to fix this problem? And it looks to me also like it, then they're going to find some way around it, and then we have to spend another $10 million. Plus, I've done this calculation that you know, the cost to me of of cleaning up the mess afterwards isn't that much more than taking the preventive measures in the first place, which might actually not prevent anything. So what do you want me to do about this? And uh, there were also also, uh, suggestions, proposals, to create kind of a parallel internet for uh, critical infrastructure that would be wired to a government agency that in the event of an attack it could get back into something. That, you know, that was leaked and denounced as Orwellian. Uh, that, that fell apart. The reason, defense department networks are not bad because over the years they've been centralizing them. And right now, the entire defense department, there are eight intersections between defense networks and the overall internet. And the NSA can sit on top of those. And they can see what's going on. periodically they'll scour inside to see if they missed anything but they do a pretty good job of keeping guys out not foolproof but you know not bad nobody has even been able to count the number of intersections between civilian government and the overall internet critical infrastructure it's in the thousands you're not which is by the way why in the latest they've actually gotten open about this they they you know NSA and, and Cyber Command in, in their doctrinal statements are now saying they're calling us, def- they, they don't call it CNE anymore, but basically the, uh, the, the answer to protecting the nation, because that's one of their missions now, is to get inside other, na- is to preempt an attack by attacking first. That, that's, that's their explicit avowed. These are in unclassified documents now. Uh, because there is no way that you can sit on 4,000 networks and, and know what's going on. Even within the you know, Obama has imposed some executive orders, which do some interesting things. But even there, the, the latest one, it says, nothing in this order shall be interpreted as a requirement. He created something called a, an, an ISO for the entire government, which is a good idea. But this ISO has no budgetary power no hiring and firing power. He can't walk into an agency and say, your stuff is woefully out of date. Your passwords are three. You've got guys having passwords. It's called password. I'm shutting you down. I'm shutting you. I'm disconnecting you from the internet until you fix it. He has no power to do that. Uh, so you know, that's the kind of thing that you have to do uh, if you're going to get serious about this. So last week, I
0: interviewed for the Lawfare podcast Suzanne Spaulding, the Uh the lead DHS official. And uh, Suzanne's view uh, was that DHS has stood up a highly capable um, uh, uh, cyber defense uh, capacity that is at this point largely organic to DHS, borrowing less and less capacity from NSA, and that is uh, at this point largely trusted within the federal government and within the private sector for uh, you know, dot .gov, not dot .mil obviously, but yeah. dot, dot .gov unclassified government computer systems. I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, that claim and, and more broadly on the claim uh, that there is some government actor responsible for the non-military side and non-national security side of U.S. and <clears throat> critical infrastructure protection yeah. and government uh, systems protection that is capable of actually making a big difference in that space.
1: Well, it, it, it's, it's a lot better than it used to be. I mean, there is something, but I... But I talked with a lot of people about this, and you know, I talked with a lot of people who would be affected and theoretically helped by this, and none of them believe that DHS is anything but massively dysfunctional. Uh, even if they had the systems. And, you know, the, the, the Einstein program, you know, that's not bad. But then Einstein, too, I supposed. To, there's a degree of automation in that, and that really hasn't worked out so well yet. And, again, the, being covered by it is not mandatory, and the number of agencies that are covered by it are limited. And the protocols for what to do about it are still a little vague. But not, not only that, it's the, uh, it's the, the personnel. Uh, people don't stay there for very long. You know, you have to have people who really know what they're doing in this. Uh, they get, and th- this is a problem that NSA is having now, too. They get swept up by private industry where they can be paid a lot more money. Uh, but, uh, but the, the bureaucratic, uh, I mean, I have a story in the book that when, when he was Secretary of Defense, Gates worked out this plan with Janet Napolitano. They are going to create... I mean, Napolitano would pick a new deputy director of the NSA. I mean, it would be appointed by Gates, but it would be Napolitano's. And this would be someone who would be both with DHS and NSA. And he would have the legal authority of DHS, but the resources of the NSA, in in case there was an attack on civilian stuff. And uh, they picked a, a terrific guy for it. Uh, this guy named is a rear admiral named Mike Brown, who is now at RSA, but he, he had come up through NSA and the Navy and it, uh, cryptography. But because of that fact, he created suspicion everywhere. Uh, DHS hated it. It was The deputy director of DHS at the time was someone who thought that uh, the Internet should not be militarized at all. You know, this is not a domain for warfare, which is a nice position, but, you know, hey, should have told me that ten years ago. Uh, the people in the inner agencies, NSC, were pissed off that they hadn't been let in on this. Anyway, he was denied the powers that it would need to for this to function. Uh, it would have been unlimited, but still, that, that would have amounted to something. But it's it's no, it's I mean, you know, talk to Suzanne, and have her back five years from now when she's off doing something else, and ask her how effective it really was. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I'm gonna close with one, one forward-looking question. You've described uh, the f- first sort of 40 years of cybersecurity. When well, you Almost
1: 50, really. But so yeah,
0: when yeah. you look forward, the pace of the book accelerates, yes, right, right very true. quickly. Sort of.
1: There's not uh, much between 67 and 84, that's right. true.
0: Yeah. And so I'm interested in, I assume that acceleration will continue Mm-hmm. But when you look at the, the, the next, I don't even want to say 40 years or 50 years, but 10 years, 5 years, um, what do you see as the logical extension of the story mm-hmm. that you've told here that's, as coming down the pike?
1: Well, I mean, uh, it's not necessarily completely linear. I mean, when, uh, some parts of this book read a little like Groundhog Day. Uh, you know, some administration realizes, oh my god, we're in trouble here, and they start to do things, and then somebody else comes into power, and it takes three years for them to say, oh my god, we're in trouble, and then they write a paper that's exactly the same as the paper that was written three years, and this happens repeatedly, I mean, like, it's a little maddening, it's the same, damn, sometimes the same person has written it for two different administrations, and, uh, but, you know, at this point, a generation has now passed. And one reason why it took so long to get going was because, as, as we were saying earlier, you, know, you had a military where you know the Army was run by tank commanders, the Navy was run by submarine and carrier skippers, and the Air Force was run by fighter and bomber pilots. They, they, they didn't care about this. This was a sideshow. Now you, you do have this cyber command. You have centers of cyber excellence in all the, uh, the military academies. You have everybody realizing that this is a problem. There has there actually been through a couple of administrations. That there's no denying that. You even have the beginning, and I mean really, really the, the remote beginnings of some discussion about this with, say, the Chinese government. I mean, it's like you know talking about, talking about, talking about creating a forum in which we might talk about. So it's, it's like at that level, but still, Things are happening. Uh, and interestingly, it used to be we were the only ones living in a glass house. You know, some of these countries are now crazy enough. They've developed their own SCADA systems for everything. It's almost, At least with the major powers, it's almost a de facto mutual assured destruction thing uh, being created. Uh, there's, there's, you know, how you draw places like Syria, Iran, North Korea, and possible in the future non-state actors into this you know, concert of Vienna, Congress of Vienna to protect cybersecurity, I don't know. Uh, but you know, I, I have been around long enough to, to remember the days when, you know, nuclear arms control with the Russians, that was deemed impossible. You know, you can't verify it, can't do this with it. Theater, you know, INF, that was, oh, that's never gonna happen. Chemical weapons treaties, oh, that's never gonna happen. Uh, oh, you know, just recently, oh, the Iranians will never agree with a nuclear deal. And while the verdict is still a little bit out on that one, They've done everything that they... So, I mean, who knows which way this is going? Who knows if there is some massive cyber disaster, whether everybody will come to their senses. Uh, but, again, this... this I, I think one thing I do spell out in the book is that there are more impediments than conduits to, to, to this happy story. Uh, it is... In terms of co- co- comparing it with the nuclear realm, uh, it's like we're all in 1949 in terms of thinking about this seriously, and yet 20 countries have the bomb. you know. Uh, so the technology has run way ahead of, of the thinking and, and the doctrine on this. And it's you know, I, I'm not hopeful, but uh, much I, I'm not completely pessimistic, at least it is something, and even now, you know, the US government is beginning to acknowledge cyber offensive. We're talking about it. I mean, one reason why people haven't been thinking about it is because they haven't been in a position to think about it because it's completely secret. It's becoming more and more in the open. So, um, will there be a sequel? Will there be an afterward in the paperback edition? I, I don't know. But I, think, I don't think that, uh, I hope anyway, that, uh, you know, if we come back to this 10 years from now, uh, you, you could still read this book as the definitive history, and nothing has changed since it came out in March of 2016. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank soon. You.
0: For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.